From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Vanella Kernabone. I'm Napalm. I um, try to live as best to my ability as a superhero or a cartoon character. I just like to contribute colour into the world. Napalm had a turbulent childhood, yet despite a difficult upbringing, she found solace in nature, in animals and in music, as she grew into the independent spirit and curious soul that has enchanted such artists as Erica Badu, Animal Collective, Questlove and the late Great Prince. Were you always singing as a child? When I listen to your voice, there's so, I mean, it's so beautiful, of course, and you've got so many gorgeous influences, but then it's all your own. I don't know, when I was little, I, my mum was like a contemporary choreographer, super crazy rad artist babe that had six kids and like we had massive ballet mirrors in the lounge room and like the edges of the house were covered in butcher's paper with like textures along the bottom of the walls so that if we drew on the walls it would be it would be artistic and celebrated as, a, as opposed to like something you get in trouble for. So it was a very creative household and because I had so many siblings, like I just grew up listening to her like records so like soul records and because she was a contemporary choreographer she'd you know listen um she was studying at VCA in Melbourne and so the library there is amazing and she'd just bring home like really random awesome stuff like flamenco and contemporary choreography bits and gamelan and West African music and whatever so being exposed to a lot of amazing art from a young age and also having so many siblings, like singing just kind of came naturally and actually learnt how to harmonise just because we all sang. You know, anytime I actually find it really weird when I'm in a car and people don't listen to music and sing along. Like that was such a poignant part of my childhood was like all the kids in the car with like Stevie Wonder <laughs> cranked and we'd all be singing along and it was just like, yeah, it was like a karaoke car trip. And- yeah, having, but also having that kind of range of musical influences to, mm. to be able to draw on, you know, because I know you're not, you're not necessarily trained in the musical theory as such, but you are trained by listening yeah. and by doing the harmony. It's just about paying, paying attention and, you know, you can either pay attention by learning all the like academic facts of something or you can just be genuinely curious and learn that way. So, What was yeah. your favourite artist? You mentioned Stevie Wonder before, but you know how, I mean, I think back, I used to listen to a lot of Boy George. I don't think that's yes. necessarily the, you know, the pinnacle I, of singing, but pretty good. <laughs> pinnacle of like eye makeup maybe. <laughs> Beautiful. Really Blending good. like God. <laughs> uh, one time I was at the airport in Singapore and I was by myself and I was really jet lagged and it was like a some kind of like connecting flight and um I can't remember what I was wearing but the like customs officer just started laughing at me and was like boy George boy George and didn't like really speak that much English and I was like I'm not boy George (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't explain myself but I guess it's like you know it is a compliment but I was just like really tired I was like oh Uh, I'm not a karma chameleon but I am a chameleon (laughs) So I'm okay with that. Right. Yeah. If you had said Bowie, maybe I would have been a little bit more excited. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way to, you know, that's something to aspire to. Nothing certainly. against Boy George. You're, you're wonderful. We'll talk about your solo music in a moment, but I wanted to talk about um, Charlie Parker because yeah. um, 
apparently you often try and bring Charlie to interviews and I feel really <laughs> bereft because I have heard an interview with you with the beautiful sound of a bird in the background. So, I mean, Screaming. I think... Screaming. I don't know about beautiful sounds. Sometimes it's just like... Can you imitate it? He's got catchphrases. One of them is... <laughs> Which is really loud, and sometimes you have this weird little laugh thing, and like really cute little. So tell me about Charlie Parker. Obviously, you can't bring him to Sydney from from where you're living because you if can't. If I drove, on... yeah. Right. So he normally does come if you do drive. No, because mm, <laughs> right. I never drive. Like, <laughs> yeah, I would love to bring him, but uh, I can't fly. We have like the strictest biosecurity laws in the world. My. Japanese Sony rep where I'm signed to like an imprint of Sony and so you have different representatives around the world and um the one in Japan she was like I'm obsessed with Michael Jackson and I'm always wearing Michael Jackson paraphernalia and one day she was like um just kind of pulled me aside and she was like you know when Michael Jackson was on tour my job was to babysit bubbles in the hotel room when he couldn't come to certain press things and I was like so she just got to hang out with bubbles that's a good job she's amazing <laughs> does anybody else sort of step in when you can't bring Charlie yeah he's got a couple of different like moms he's actually really um he's so beautiful and he loves people which is super weird for a bird like he's just like this magical sky flower that just rocked up one day and I ended up with him like he just flew over the fence when he was a baby and like we tried to you know we like put up posters and tried to find took him to the vet and he didn't he was like super affectionate and super sooky and like no one claimed him and they're like we could find someone for him or you could just keep him and so I just ended up with him and he's kind of like he's not a pet he's just like my friend that's a bird that I have to like look after you know like you have that one drunk friend that you kind of just yeah, have to like he just kind of hangs on, on. yeah <laughs> he's like that and he's so like that he's his own like enigmatic guy do you think that charlie parker chose you because i mean i know that the you know nature and animals are very important you know it's, it's something like, that's really key yeah. it's a it's a thing yeah. I, i've always had birds um like i hand reared a crow um which was like my first tattoo the one on my face that a lot of old women think is just biro and try and look off is <laughs> actually a tattoo. And, um, it was, <laughs> Does that really happen? Yeah, that's definitely. Great. Yeah. <laughs> you got biro on your face. Like, no, that's forever. <laughs> so this is a crow. Long story short, I'm an orphan and I grew up in the city and I moved to the country and I live with wildlife carers, you know, losing my parents and, um, grieving and then being in nature and looking after animals was something that was very powerful for me as far as like a healing tool so yeah so I live with wildlife carers and like we like looked after like wedge-tailed eagles and joeys and wombats and like everything so yeah I found this crow when I moved back to Melbourne and I hand reared it and released it into the wild yeah so the tattoo was a scratch waking me up to feed her and then I, I had a dream and I tattooed it But um, it's definitely been a thing. Like I've, I attract birds. They're like, it's kind of like a, without sounding like an esoteric hippie, it's like definitely a weird auspicious thing that I attract. And Charlie is definitely part of that. He's just like, he's like my muse. He's yeah. like my magical muse. And Charlie Parker is a muse for many people too. Yeah, the, the musician. bird. Bird yeah, is the, the word. Bird, the bird is the word. That's true. <laughs> he loves Charlie Parker too because it's like. <laughs> Does he? Yeah, because it's really chaotic and like. I mean, the saxophone is like quite a, mm. it's probably why he got the nickname The Bird, you know, like it's such a 
avian kind of sounding instrument, you know, and yeah, Charlie. Like, and it can go so wrong, but he, he made it just perfect, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about your music, Napalm, um, and can we go to talk about Hiatus Coyote as well? Because I'd love to go back in time because it is a long story. You met um, some some friends in Melbourne, Paul Bender and others, and and I'd love you just to, to tell me about the time when you guys first got together and what made that work? What was it about their music, your sound, that gelled for you? It was very intuitive and natural, and I guess like I'd never been in a band before. You know, it's a very interesting family union and like alchemy you know but I just I don't know I've always played music and I've always expressed myself and I used to like sing in a cumbia band to like learn Spanish and stuff I mean even just from like growing up with five siblings and harmonizing together like I've I've, you know I've always had great pleasure in that connectivity musically yeah I was playing solo shows and everyone's like you should get a band together you should get a band together and I never had any musical training but the music that I was writing wasn't the simplest it was just kind of natural to me, but like. What do you mean by wasn't the simplest? Well, it's like, you know, that changes time signatures and it's like advanced harmony and it's not kind of your standard four, four, four chords kind of thing. It was like, because I was, I grew up on music that was cyclical or like, you know, music from like West Africa that's in like six, eight, you know, and, and because of my exposure to such a variety of music when I, when I came, when it came to writing, the natural progression that was that it wasn't in this like really rigid kind of format and as a result of that like I could write it but I couldn't uh, explain it so I found that very isolating especially because it's not just like jamming or improvise it's like specific arrangements and and I didn't have the language and the tools to communicate that so it took me a while to get a band together and I did a solo set on a like crappy pink child's like Yamaha practice guitar because I was like really unprofessional and didn't even have a proper guitar at the time. That could have been an aesthetic though. You could have just gone, you know, I chose this. This is good. Yeah, I actually, it was like one of my first gigs and I met Jermaine from Flight of the Concords on the way to my gig. So I was just like walking down the street with this like little guitar and he just started talking to me. I was too chicken shit to like invite him to the gig, but... Anyway, That's, same night. I wonder if you get when you meet him next time, say, hey, guess what? You know, we've done all right since that time in Melbourne. <laughs> he won't remember it. There's yeah. no way. But like, so you're at that gig. I'm at that gig, and Bender comes up to me, and he had business cards. He was so cute. Like, he was, you know, he was like, um, he had business cards, and he was like, I'm a producer and arranger, and I just hear so much in your music, and I want to help you work with you as a producer and I, I didn't even really know what a producer was I was just like I was like oh he's got a card that's official <laughs> <laughs> and then I chickened out and like it's really funny actually I have an e- the original email from him like he emailed me and um anyway I whisked out and then I went to the desert for a while and then I came back and I met Perrin um he was drumming in a band and uh the Evelyn and I just like went and my friend took me and then I ran into him at a cafe across the road from my like community school I was going to, and I had my guitar. Like at that point in my life, I just walked around with a guitar all the time. Well, we, we just walk around with mobile phones these days, so I kind of like this guitar <laughs> yeah, this version like much better. People. Yeah. <laughs> and so I ran into him, and he was at this cafe, and he started like I played him Lace Skull, which is on our first record. Which time signature wise, it's a bit weird. What does a time signature do? I don't really. 
though. So it's like, but it goes from like regular beat to yeah. five, four, six. So you're moving it around within the song. It's like yeah. it, if it's like different rhythms kind of tied together. Yeah. And a polyrhythm is when you have two separate rhythms that sound opposing, but they fit together. It's basically time travel. Right. You're messing with the constructs of what your brain perceives to be time and linear. And so I started playing this song and he started drumming along on the chair that like a cajon, like which is this flamenco percussive instrument. And he like got all the hits and stuff like and he, he, could, he could play with me. And I remember just being like, wow, like someone can play with this. Like, and then he was doing production too and was like, do you want to like, I would love to have you as a singer, la, la, la. And then I wussed out and then like somehow just kind of found Bender again in like just going out to parties, like house parties and they'd be like jamming and stuff. And I just like found him again and he was like, I want to get help you get a band together. He knew a lot of musicians because he was like a session musician and studied. So we got a couple of guys in, but it was really quite, I didn't know how to direct them and they didn't know what to do with the music because it was just like, a bit weird and, and I kind of just like wanted someone to like this is the songs like and this is what it's about how do you interact with that rather than like I need you to do this kind of thing so feel the song yeah and just, just like read the song yeah, yeah like what do I do now it was more like what can what could it be you know so that was kind of a little bit traumatic and then Bender was doing a gig with Simon and Simon's, Simon's a keys player and played in all these different bands and stuff and they were doing a gig together and they lived, like, Simon lived in the house where we were rehearsing, which is where we recorded our first record. And, they, and like You recorded at home? Yeah, it was just like, um, well, it was called Blank Tape Studios and it was just like a musician share house that was kind of like a studio. And Simon lived there and we were using it as a rehearsal space. And like Ben did a gig with Simon was like, yeah, I've got this like amazing songwriter, but I'm really struggling to find the right musicians for it. And Simon was like, that's the music you've been rehearsing with. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, I don't know. Simon was like, I'd love to be in that. And he just kind of didn't think to ask him because he was, you know, like it was just like a new project and I didn't know what I was doing. And he was like already playing with the bamboos and touring internationally and stuff. But he was like, into it and so like I was moving out of my house to go to the desert and I was just putting everything in storage and Perrin rocked up at my house for like a session thing being a percussionist in someone else's band and it was like whoa what are you doing here and Bender was there and we were playing this like another song that was really complicated that I was teaching Bender and he was playing it on bass and then Pez started playing along with us and like was like you know do you want to like maybe be on board and do percussion or something and like Anyway, all these conversations happened and then we found ourselves in the rehearsal studio, which was like Perrin on percussion, Bender on bass, Simon on keys and me. And like Bender like, I went to his house and he, I played all of the songs that I'd written and he chord charted it all out and like gave Simon like the written wow. music for it. And we had our first rehearsal and it just worked. Like it was just really, everybody has such broad influences and everyone is you know was really it was bizarre because me and Perrin didn't have any formal training but we'd been raised on a lot of cool shit and like Bender and Simon had like gone through schools and stuff but have, have like had really you know were just really curious as creators and stuff and so it was this really beautiful conglomerate of like you know like some of my favorite moments when we were like working on stuff was when I'd play something and they're like what 
what is that? How are you, where are you hearing the one? Or like, <laughs> you can't do that harmonically, but somehow it works. And I used to love like whenever. So you're training each other almost. Exactly. Yeah. So whenever anybody had any kind of blockage, somebody else would compliment that. Yeah. And that's how we've ended up with our sound. You know, it's like, it's a unit. It really is. Like every- so when, when you began, it was the unit or it was, sounds like it was pretty well honed at the beginning, but these things yeah. take time to develop and grow too. They do. I mean, in the beginning, it was all my songs and they were learning it, but also like coming because the songs were quite weird. You have to think outside of the box to interact with it. And they're all really creative and intuitive players. So, I mean, and I've always had a pretty strong I, I like brain for arrangement and even now like if ever we get stuck like I'm I'm quite good at song structure and arranging and and, I, and ideas but I, I guess like we all just trust what the music needs to be and you have to allow people to come to it in their own way because it could blow your mind you know like collaboration is just like greater than even your own imagination I think sometimes it's a bit sad when bands or musicians have these hang-ups on like this is what it needs to be and you have to like the main ethos of our project is everybody needs to enjoy what it is that they're doing rather than like you have to play this part even though that's not what you feel like I just find like people are they're the best at their instruments so they're going to know what feels good and what works and there's growing pains for sure but like we all just really trust each other musically and you know, pick up the slack in different parts whenever, you know. Whenever you it's need. It's like a Voltron. It is. It all, everything's like a Voltron. Your life is like a Voltron. That's true. That's how I feel. I'm kind of curious because, I mean, you, you guys have experienced incredible success and it happened very quickly uh, in, in some circles and definitely overseas. Extraordinary. The responses of audiences, because you're saying the collaboration, how it gels for you as a group, but going through that process of touring and seeing the love from an audience, how that influences how you write your music and how you express it, has has there been a, a shift for you at all? That's also the sound of your hair moving, by the way. Let's just do that again. This is what I love. So what are you wearing? Uh, I, I, um, I found this, like, beaded wig in a vintage shop it's it's quite powerful for me because like adornment is playful but also um powerful my mother died of breast cancer and she lost her hair and she had really long blonde hair and it was kind of like such a strong part of her identity you know like um and so when she lost her hair instead of wearing wigs she had this like long black beaded wig kind of like the one that I'm wearing right now and um she used to wear that I inherited it after she died and I used to wear it. Uh, you know, she died when I was 11 and it got a bit damaged. Like it was super beautiful vintage, but I was like 11 and independent from the age of 14 and moving around and I just didn't really have that um, maturity to look after it properly. And then um, so I had to stop wearing it and then I found like a plastic one. It looked like it, it was silver and I toured with that for a while and then I was in Japan years later and found one made out of chain that I wore to the Grammys. Like the second time we went to the Grammys, I wore that. And then just the other day, like I've kind of been like upgrading every couple of years this, on this idea that was like my mother's headdress. I have a lot of hair <laughs> and um, I, I found this headdress in a vintage shop two days ago and it like, 
it's in that style, but it fit, fits all my hair underneath it. So it's two days ago. Yeah, this is cool. And right before the like Sydney Opera House show as well, which is <laughs> going to be really beautiful. You know, just to like. Yeah, I mean, playing with the band was really amazing and, you know, monumental, but, like, this is my first, like, solid show with my backup vocalist and, you know, vocal harmony is my obsession. It's my the thing that I love the most and to really work at vocal arrangements and be able to, like, share that live in an intimate and raw way is really important for me and so it was, like, really cool that I found this, like, like, I always find an upgrade of this headdress right before some like really beautiful, powerful thing like the Grammys or like playing here. And yeah. So, so and when you saw it in my... the shop, it's beautiful. When you saw it in the shop, did you, were you like almost like a magnet just yeah. gravitate I'm towards a tr- it? I'm a pirate. Yeah. Like I got a parrot, I got a gold tooth. Like <laughs> I love treasure. Like my father, he, he made jewelry and had a market store. Yeah. He was like a biker and he, he made like bone jewelry and leather work and teepees and stuff. So I grew up in markets when I was really little and my mom was an artist and a painter and a dancer, but she also had vintage shops and stuff. So from a young age, like I've just like always been obsessed with like treasure. And so I have a, I have an eye. You have an eye, you pick them out, find the things, but they all have meaning too when you're, when you're wearing them, I'm assuming. So yeah. it depends on well, what it, it is. Well, it depends. Like sometimes stuff's just like playful, but generally like I have a really strong sentimental compass when it comes to the things I adorn myself with. You've called it armor. Is that right? Hmm. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. What does that mean really? It's protection, but m- rather than like defense it's an accentuation of yourself therefore you feel more it enhances your what you already experience and know of yourself internally I don't know I think there's there's so much power in like in that and I I really believe that that's why a lot of mainstream conformity as far as what is acceptable to wear exists because there is there is something powerful about wearing things that are important to you or like you know like getting your hair done or even just like having a shower or something or something like there is a power in it and it, it like it can just be superficial but like it depends on like your awareness of things you know and it's a different form of ritual too yeah. you know what I mean like the we you know back in the day we might have gone to church or all that kind of other stuff but that we there are things that we can do for ourselves that we can do mm. that we create our own space our own rituals I guess yeah and and it's not necessarily like you don't have to be the most adventurous dresser to feel powerful and comfortable in your body. But I have like just the way that I've brought up and the things that I'm attracted to is like wonder. I'm very curious and I love art and artisans and culture. What is the thing that defines your solo work uh, as opposed to what you're doing when you're talking about that gorgeous collaboration with your friends and, and colleagues at Hiatus Coyote, but what is the thing that do, that creates the, that creates the you that is the solo performance, the solo music? I'd say the intimacy. It's like a time lapse or something, you know, like if you ever watch, I'm obsessed with nature documentaries and I love it. I actually love the music that goes with time-lapse videos of when like flowers are, you know, like growing and they, it's very direct and, and I have to be very emotionally present for it because there's no, there's, there's nothing to 
it's women. You just have to be, it's like, it's very direct. And um, I, I guess like the fact that the attention, like I have to carry the energy of everybody as opposed to like sharing that role with other people is quite different. And I also, you know, when you're working with other musicians, you have to, there's strict arrangements and stuff, but then there's room for improvisation. But if it's just me, I have a little bit more fluidity with like, if I just want to like repeat a verse or something, I can just like do it or change the rhythm of it a bit than I can without it. Like, you know, if I just like repeated a verse, but when everyone else thinks that we're going to go on to the chorus, it'll be hell, you know? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Yeah. So um, it's very cathartic and I love both. They're kind of like part of the same jigsaw, but it's like, it's just, a, it's just like focusing on one detail. You mentioned the harmonies though before the backup singers. Mm. That that's obviously something that's that you get to explore here. It's so special. Why it's is so it so special. special? Because there's something powerful about the human voice. It just is. Like I know that sounds like a singer thing to say, but like the first thing you do when you come into the world is make sound. The first thing you hear is you're like the voice of your mother. Whether you're a singer or not, there's like human body empathy that happens with the human voice. It's, it's the most direct way, I believe, to translate emotion to other people. And I don't know why that is, but I think it's something to do with the physical component of us being like human beings. You can literally have nothing else with you and still have that form of connectivity. Vocal harmony is just like, there's no smoke and mirrors and it's just emotion. Especially vocal, and I feel like the reason so much pop music is super compressed and super auto-tuned is because it sucks out the human element, which is the thing that is powerful and connects people and changes the fucking world, and I really believe that. Well, we forget, don't we? We forget that the music itself can be incredibly simple. Yeah. It's and very overproduced in, in the world that we live in. It's well, very generic. I think for a reason, though. And I love production. I love tricks and stuff if it's done in a really beautiful, creative way, but I just think... I don't know, I wanted to do a record that was really like has a level of humility because it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to meet this standard of vocal perfection, but there's so there's power in that. Like sometimes my favourite elements of a recording will be like, you know, like Lauren Hill live unplugged when her voice breaks yeah, and you can hear it and it's not perfect, but there's so much power in that like giving. And so the cool thing about like this record is like I – I'm striving for that. It's like capture that, that energy of imperfection, but like pure intention. It's funny. I mean, just to flip back a bit, I mean, I know that you, your song was called Building a Ladder, the introduction to Drake's, Drake's <laughs> album. But just based on what you're saying, I mean, you know, this is a, a gentleman who has serious production when it comes to his music. It's commercial stuff and He's it's really, highest- really big grossing pop artist in the world. Yeah, right. So he chose his, your song, Building a Ladder, to open his album. And it's not just a little sample. It's 35 sweet seconds of Of you singing. Of you singing. It's pretty, it's powerful. What I'm wondering here, if there's a kind of a connection between what you're saying and that, and a motivation to do something like that is to remind us that actually it does get back to the human voice. Before the Drake thing happened, um, I'm opening my record with a ceremonial singer from Arnhem Land. It's very magical. <laughs> this is the record that's coming up. Mm-hmm. And he's, um, yeah, it's a song line that's a snake. It's a guardian of water and sings lightning. And it's just him and clapsticks. And I wanted to 
introduce an acoustic raw vocal album with one of the most powerful voices I've ever heard mm. that maybe people wouldn't have an exposure to because I feel like, you know, we have a very, very powerful, rich culture here. A lot of people don't know about because it's hard to find and it's been separated for a reason. And so I think it's really, I find it really rewarding to be able to be those bridges and it kind of like in another like dimension to that is what Drake did with us, you know, like some underground stuff that's super emotive that maybe the more mainstream audience wouldn't know about, but it resonates with him and that's how he wanted to start off his album. And like, I was talking to his manager and he was saying that like, cause how I found out about it was a, a fan tagged me in a video and it was like him opening his set, like his live set. And it's the song he listens to before he goes on stage to prepare himself for what he needs to do. As a performer, I know how, what, how important that song is. Like for me, it was like Shaka Khan for a while. Like ain't nobody. Cause I needed to like, I'm like, all right, you're about to like be a diva, get in your, your mood. But like, Lately, it's been this song, song by Jason Gurwili, the singer. And so it's just like this really beautiful symmetry between the two worlds and it just kind of happened that way. How did you meet Jason? I was doing a Change the Date gig with Uncle Jack, Jack Charles. People may know him from a documentary called Bastardy. And he's been travelling around the world doing he's his solo man show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I've known Jack since I was like 15 or something. Like my best friend Jamaica at this community school I went to, her godfather was Jack. And so I knew him as like just Jamaica's godfather. And I ran into him at Woodford because my cottage was next to him and we ended up talking and just like, it was like, yeah, I'm a musician now. And he was telling me all the stuff he's been doing. And, and then we got this email that was like he was curating this Change the Date gig to Change the Date of Australia Day. And he emailed us and asked me to play. And I was, I didn't even know he like really remembered that I was a musician or anything. And I was just like, wow, like, of course I would love to. And I was in the country for it. And, and so I did it. And, um, he flew down a band from Arnhem Land called Barra Barra, which means West Wind. And, um, Jason, he's a ceremonial singer. So he's not really on the touring circuit, but he was just with them. And his voice was just like, I want, I was flirting with the idea of doing, opening with a welcome to country, just, you know, but it's a bit political. And I just heard him and I, I was like bawling my eyes out. I was like, this is as far as vocalists go, like he can just like straight away get in a trance and it's like raw power. It's magic. It just is magic. And I managed to like track his manager down. It was really easy. I didn't even meet him that night because I had, I actually like found out I had gastro and I did that gig with a crazy fever and thought I was dying. But you got to push on. <laughs> you do. It yeah, was so yeah, important to me. On. It was so important. And I was yep. just like, oh, I feel like horrible, but I just need to do this. And then I went to WOMAD because my favorite singer was playing, Omo Sangari. She's from Mali. She's like my musical mother. And so I flew there and he just happened to be there and um, was in contact about getting him to like maybe open the record with something. And um, I was supposed to fly home the day I met him and he was like, he was like, when are you leaving? I'm like, oh, I'm leaving an hour. And he's like, no, no, you're leaving on Wednesday when I leave. And I was like, no, no, I'm leaving. My flight's in like an hour. And he's like, looked me in the eyes. He's like, no, you, you stay and we'll record the song. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like he's magical. Do it now. <laughs> and then the next day, like went into a studio and, it was like, how do you feel about, you know, a song line that's a snake that sings lightning? And I was just like, it could have been, he would have picked anything. It could have been a song about 
bush tomatoes or whatever but like I'm like obsessed with lightning and I'm year of the snake and I have them tattooed down my throat and it's a very important totem for me and so like the fact that that's what he chose was just like oh my goodness are you kidding me and it was really beautiful and um and it opens the album yeah it opens the record yeah you know I mean I was reading some interviews with you and so many people saying oh you invited to go see Prince you know and it's it's a thing right and you didn't didn't make it he um, came to our gig in Minneapolis did he yeah it right. was terrifying <laughs> he invited us to play at his house like Paisley Park like three times but it didn't work out with our touring eventually he just bit the bullet and like came and saw us play <laughs> but you were nervous like, yeah, man. It's only, it's it's only Prince, come on. Yeah, and I had the flu at the time. <laughs> and I was like, and we didn't know it was coming. It was just kind of like last minute. It was like, someone has reserved the whole top floor and uh, I wonder who it could be. And I was like, it's probably Prince. But like, I was talking to security guys. I'm like, do, do you know who it is? Do you think it's Prince? And they're like, if it is Prince, he's not coming because he never comes. And then he just like rocked up and sat on the side of the stage with sunglasses with his legs crossed for the whole set and usually he'll just come and check some shit out and leave but he said the whole set and it was just like yeah yeah rad did you did you shake hands afterwards no he because like he i mean he's a unicorn he's, he was so famous like they literally had to have our set list like they had people like walkie-talkie and when we were going to start like so right before the end of our last song like he had to get out before everyone because there was only one entrance yeah and I also didn't want to be like he was right there but I I wanted to give him his, his like people knew he was there but it was also kind of like I don't want to be like hey prince la 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 and like make it like a thing I was like I'm performing for you and I'm like, this is me performing to my audience and you can experience That's right. That. Well, he is the audience. He's part of that audience. And I didn't want to make it a novelty or something. So, you know, but he came and he, he was there. He was present. And like there was one song where I played Jekyll, which is the one that I wrote on piano and so I'm playing piano and it's facing him because he was on the side of the stage with the piano. Like when I'm playing guitar, I face out to the audience. But when I was playing piano, I was facing him and my piano like, was on a weird keyboard setting and I started it was in this like horrible like strings I was like no and I had to like turn it off and like turn it back on and start again I'm like I'm sorry I can't like I need to do this right for you because you're here and like and I played it for him and that was the one where I was like facing him (laughs) would you have liked to have collaborated with him or I mean I was just thinking the reason why I was asking that question is because before when you were talking about Jason Mm. you know we always talk to artists and we say oh what's it like to meet your heroes or to collaborate with your heroes but those heroes are sometimes the ones that we don't expect it's meeting the people that can speak to you it's the guy that comes and suggests let's talk about you know your totem the snake and I'm going to do this and it's going to happen automatically so what we think about what that means I suppose those dream collaborations aren't always the ones you expect they're really not and I um to be honest just because I admire people musically doesn't mean that I need to collaborate with them my the, my dream collaborations are more like gamelan orchestras or you know like there's this artist Nick Cave who's does like sound sculptures which are like he's like a choreographer and a designer and he makes these crazy like fluffy they look like living animations and they're like things that are pushing you artistically definitely you know like I already challenge myself with with my writing and like the band is a collaboration and so whenever I 
any like dream collabs for me are usually like things that are like challenging or quite obscure that I find deeply moving. Just recently, I played in Central Australia at a festival called Wide Open Spaces, and we did a live performance with the Sandhill Women, and they're like three Indigenous mamas, and they sing in language, and they taught me a song in language, and uh, we performed it. Hopefully, going to be doing an arrangement with them and. One of the elder women, um, Janie, gave me a skin name and gave me bush medicine and was just like, it was very, very beautiful. And, you know, just things that are really genuine and like that opened me up to like the beauty in the world rather than like, you know, like I'd love to collaborate with like Missy Elliott or something because she's just like awesome and I think it'd be really fun and cool, but like, for me, like that, I I don't tend to like seek it out as much. I don't know, like that Radiohead song, "Everything in Its Right Place." It's kind of like a life mantra for me. And I, as long as you're active with your intuition and like seeking, then you just kind of gravitate and attract the things that you're supposed to attract without you know putting all this expectation on like what I think other people will think is cool or like what will be successful if I work with or like it's just. You can't live that way. And if you do, it's like empty. Sounds like you've got everything in its right place, to be honest. Well, you know, I, there's always room for improvement and I'm growing, but I, I have a really strong compass in my life with what I'm supposed to do. And I really like, I'm excited about it and I work at it and it feeds me. Napalm, <laughs> what an absolute pleasure to, oh. to speak with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This is really um, wonderful. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House. The season features guests from the Vivid Live program and it's hosted by me, Vanella Kernerbone. Produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. The music mix is from Evan Williams and we were recorded by Josh Craig. Mastered by Cullum Jensen-McKinnon and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey. 